interesting thing here is that our brain, our, that hippocampus, that area I spoke to about earlier, being the area responsible for memory, it's wanting to grow right up until the day we die. Okay. So there are baby neurons there just waiting for the opportunity to grow. And what's been, what the difference is between, say, a 20-year-old and a 90-year-old is vascularization, blood supply into that area. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. G'day everyone, Craig from People With A Passion. Today's guest in the studio is Dave Norris, who's an occupational therapist and the host of the podcast, Memory Health Made Easy. He's passionate and driven to try to reduce preventable memory loss as we get older, and he has experience working with brain trauma and also uh, people with dementia and things of that nature, and he believes that a lot of what he sees can be prevented by changes to our lifestyle as we get older. So please join me now on People With A Passion with Dave Norris. G'day everyone, welcome to People With A Passion and today I'm joined by guest Dave Norris who's an occupational therapist and he's a man on a mission. He's looking at uh, helping people improve their memory health. So we hear a lot about mental health but we're going to be talking about memory health which is a little bit of difference. There will be probably some overlap I imagine. So Dave, what is memory health? That's a great question Craig. Memory health, if I put it very simply, is about stopping memory loss. Mm -hmm. So memory loss is the time when we obviously have real cognitive issues. Can't remember the time of the day. Can't remember where my keys are. And a question that I often get asked is from folk is, Dave, is memory loss normal? And we do have fluctuations with it. It's when memory loss goes bad, to borrow that sort of classic headline, on how it affects our daily life. And for me as a an occupational therapist for 20 odd years, seeing the devastating impacts that memory loss have on folk, I want to see people maintaining their memory health for life. You're actually saying that a lot of this with a correct lifestyle is actually avoidable to a great degree that, that some of the memory loss that's being experienced as we get older. So do you want to talk about the different potentials for what results in memory loss? When uh, we're looking at, say, a condition like severe memory loss being dementia, dementia is an umbrella term of which there's many different types of dementia, Alzheimer's being one of them. So we might have also frontotemporal dementia as another term that's in the, the space when people have severe memory loss. Mm -hmm. I want to come back a little bit on your question there because there's quite a lot in that question. And I'll start off with that when you asked me about prevention and preventing dementia, there was a really seminal paper that came out in 2000, 2017 by The Lancet, large British medical journal. They came out and showed us that by taking very simple steps throughout the course of our lifetime, we can reduce the experience of dementia by 35%. Mm. So that's one in three people dodging that brain health destiny. Now, in terms of numbers, I would like just to give a scale here of what we're looking at. That's one person every three seconds right now across the globe is being diagnosed with dementia. Now, that's, that's an amazing statistic, isn't one it? One every three seconds. That is, that is phenomenal. And it's only going to get worse. Mm. With our ageing population globally, we're seeing this. And this is an Australian thing as well. So we're not dodging this bullet by any stretch of the imagination. And interestingly, it's affecting women more than men. And there's a lot of theories about why that's the case. But we see that as a dementia, severe memory loss, affecting women more than men. And it's not a huge we, magnitude. Do we know why <laughs> that actually is? Because we talk about lifestyle and the opportunity to prevent it. Is it related to the way that we're approaching our lives differently or is it genetics or how well, is it a bit of both you can well this is almost number two point in your question earlier which is what are the things we can't do and what are mm -hmm. the things we can do yeah and one of the things that we can't wave the magic wand on is getting old age is associated with an increased risk for dementia now i want everyone to be aware that what i'm saying here is that age is not causative 
it's associated. So there's a link between them. It's not necessarily being old, you get dementia. It is you're in a group of people where you're increasing your risk. And what seems to be the case is what's adding up. Think of it like fuel on the fire. We've got lots of stuff going onto the fire over our lifetime. Well, guess what? Put a match to it at you know 80 mm. years of age. It's going to go up. Yeah, sure. So what we need to be thinking about is understanding what are the things that are adding fuel to the fire. Now, coming back to the Lancet 2017's paper, they showed some very simple things that we could start doing in our lives that can reduce the stuff on the fire. So I guess at the end of the day, it's about controlling our risk. And that's what I want folk to be more aware of is how can I control my risk? Mm-hmm. You know, we're all pretty smart about putting sunscreen on. When was the last time you actually did something for your noggin? Yeah, exactly. So you're really, as I said at the start of the episode, you're a man on a mission because you've established an education platform called Memory Health Made Easy, which is a podcast. And also you have a toolkit you've created to help people assess their memory. And so this isn't just something where you're spruiking the science. It is something that you are genuinely passionate about to try and help deliver better quality of life as we get older yeah mate uh, i i I see your shirt there people with passion and what you're about and what what this show's about and i did an exercise about probably about seven years ago with a mentor um i was at a point in time where i'm you know i enjoy my clinical work but i'm only helping so many people and i'm helping so many people commonly at the end of their life Mm mm-hmm Rather than, And it got me thinking about what can we do to get in front of this? And through some work, and there's a classic exercise of, of looking at, you know, the future and how do I perceive myself in the future and what is the legacy I wanted to create and what are the things that really motivate me and inspire me? And so my first step in trying to resolve that question was to see if folk were interested in listening to this type of message and listen and taking this information mm-hmm. on. And I offered it to a, um, a retirement community to start off with. And uh, they had about 4,000 people that were in that community through, you know, exercise programs to their newsletters, to events, to, you know, that was their community. And uh, I said, look, I, I just want to limit my first opportunity to talk to people to say, you know, would 50 people be interested? Because I think I could do a room of 50 people yep. and see whether they'd be interested. And as a result of just putting that out there, I think we ended up getting about 200 people mm. saying that they wanted to come in and learn. So I ran that course four times over four weeks. We need to get this early and get onto this and understand that some of this stuff that we're talking about this memory uh, health and memory loss may well be for many of us, a good portion, uh, preventable, or at least the onset of it can be reduced till absolutely later in life, I guess, as well. Because you said it's not a case that we're going to necessarily, like through genetics or disease, there are some instances where it may not be avoidable, but anything we can do to reduce you know, the impact on our lives later in life is worth doing now. So let's talk about some of the things that actually we can be doing to improve our memory health. Mm. Now, before we go into that, I guess, what we probably need to do is is talk about um, what memory health actually looks like. What is a healthy memory? Mm. And what is one that's starting to demonstrate signs that there are some issues? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this comes to a really nice piece around what is the, the continuum of change. And I think that's really mind, you know, being worth bearing in mind is that it's not it happens and now my brain is broken. This is a insidious, slow-burning process. Mm-hmm. And when the client comes in to see me in my clinic and they want me to test their memory, I'm pulling out my computer test, I'm asking them to do some cognitive tests on pen and paper, and I'm getting an observation of how they are tracking. Now, if I can see that, if I can see a demonstrated change on my tools, then we are looking at a term, and we would classify that as mild cognitive impairment. That means the horses are out of the gates. Okay. 
And that means that folk are having some experience of difficulty in their life. And it's commonly going to be around problem solving, judgment, reasoning, a dynamic task like driving, budgeting, all those high level skills that our brain does for us to survive in life, being organized. Mm -hmm. These type of skills are then what I guess are popping up. Now, I want you to be in front of that because we are starting to see change at a, at a physiological level happening in our fourth decade of life. So if you're in your 40s listening to this, I would then ask you to think about doing a memory health checkup. Your GP, sadly, is not going to do this. Mm-hmm. And when I ask folk, when I'm teaching them, when was the last time your GP asked you about your memory? I would get very, very few hands up in the air. And the only people that are putting their hands up in the air is because they're saying, I've got a problem with my memory. Yeah. And sadly, we want to be in front of that because Mm -hmm. it's much like the canary in the coal mine. And the things that I want you to be attentive to are things like the foggy brain. How many of us have these personal experiences of I'm not feeling too sharp. We, we could all think about the time when we've had a head cold or a virus, absolutely flawed. We're on the bed feeling miserable, but we know we're not mentally sharp. Don't even ask me to do anything too complex like a work task. I know I'm not going to be good to, for anyone. Yeah. So that's a sense that we've had a change in our cognitive performance. Only temporary. Tick. Awesome. But what if that continues to bubble along when I've got foggy brain? Maybe I'm more irritable than I normally am. Maybe I'm not feeling as sharp or I've got the energy that I once had. Has there been a change over a two-year period where I've noticed that, hey, I'm I'm not where I was and I'm feeling a little bit... I can still do the stuff. If I put my pen and paper test in front of folk and ask them, hey, tell me you know, spell word world backwards for me, they're going to be okay. Ask them to remember a series of numbers in in a sequence up to five to seven. They're going to be okay. And I'm going to go, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, from these tests here, I can't detect anything, but you're telling me that you're not feeling sharp. And I want to understand why, due to what. Mm -hmm. And that's when we would then dig deeper around some of those lifestyle factors. Or maybe I've had a, a, an, a, an illness episode, I've come out of it, but I've got this low rumbling experience. Maybe, as I have seen before, with very mild head trauma in sports, young kids, young kids that have been playing rugby, they've had a head knock, they've been pulled out of the game, they've felt okay, but for some reason, they're not able to go back to that level of performance that they were doing. There's nothing on a scan. There's nothing wrong with them hormonally. There's nothing wrong that can be medically identified. However, there's a change in functional performance. Hmm. So how um, or what are some of those potential things like with a head knock or like what are we looking at when they can do a simple task or test, but there's, there's, they know there's an absence of cognitive ability there? Mm-hmm. So they're the things that I'm... I'm, I'm doing a read of myself to say, I do not feel that I'm performing at X level anymore. Mm-hmm. And folks, this is really important that the term that it's often thrown out there around a statement of this type of description, this personal description, is called subjective cognitive impairment. I am the best reader of my cognitive performance when I'm you know, outside of these pen and paper tasks. So thinking about memory, Am I remembering conversations clearly? Am I remembering my faces and things that are new? And this is a a skill that we would call working memory. My ability to lay down information in a very short period of time, up to three seconds, and then retrieve that as I need it later. Mm -hmm. If I showed you something new here, Craig, like a picture, and I said, remember this lady's name. I want you to remember this lady's name. Her name is Sandra. Sandra Wilson. I'm going to ask you about this lady in five minutes' time. Mm -hmm. That is a test of working memory, and then I'm going to delay it for a little period of time. Now, when folk have difficulties doing working memory tasks, then we'll see potentially I'm just sluggish. I'm I'm not as quick as what I was. So there's a speed of processing. You know, you being an IT guy would know when the processor speed goes down, 
everything starts to grind down. Mm. So we see a similar experience. Now, our brain is not a computer. It is a much more dynamic and beautiful organ. It's one of the most rich things in the universe that we know of. So when it starts to slow down, we're unable to pull the pieces in clearly. Maybe there's also a change in our mood regulation. I'm not as stable in my mood. Now, what does that mean? I'm a little bit flying off my handle. I'm not as sharp and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm reactive. So there's a really clear link between an organ in our brain responsible or associated with our memory called the hippocampus. And it throws the lasso reins around another area for our emotional regulation called the amygdala. And it holds it in check. Now, if we have changes in our memory performance, the reins get a little bit loose, the amygdala starts firing off a little bit more and getting a lot stronger, and all of a sudden we're in this new behavior pattern of being more reactive. And that change can then become quite fixed in our behavior. Hmm. So what are the tools, I guess, you were asking me around, what can we do to change that? Well, good news is, is that lifestyle represents a powerful toolbox for helping us. Now, things from diet. Let's start with nutrition first. Nutrition has been shown to be the the Lego blocks, as I explained to my kids at home. Darling, what you're eating here are Lego blocks. I mean, they're building, being built up to different things. And it's important for our brain health when we have good nutrient-dense foods in our body. So the nutrient-dense foods, guys, are the things that are coming from the tree or, a, or an animal. And there's no changing in their structure before they hit your plate, table, or on your kitchen. So, so you're talking about processed, processed things that are less processed. Less processed. If you cut out the processing, it's got to look exactly like it's come off the farm. Mm-hmm. And when we start thinking about food that way and analysing what's in our kitchen that way, we can then start to think about, well, am I getting nutrient-dense foods into me? Now, what's been interesting, there's a 2017 paper, there seems to be a lot in 2017, 2017 paper looked at folk that were on the standard Aussie diet or the standard American diet. We often call that the SAD diet. Yes. The SAD diet, they changed, uh, there was a change in four days that they put people on the standard Australian diet or the standard American diet, highly processed food, a lot of saturated fats, etc. And they saw in four days only, a shrinkage in the hippocampus. And we've already spoken about that area being responsible for memory. Mm -hmm. And change in mood, increase in anxiety. So what this then does is sets off a pathway of behavioral change. And there are some observations around memory loss due to what? Around different types of phenotypes, different groupings of symptoms and experiences that people go through. We could talk about them as, you know, a hot one, one that is associated with infections, for example. I've had an infection and it's kicked off a cascade of change. Mm -hmm. We could talk about ones that are trophic and they're often to do with our hormones. And that again, kicking off a behavioral change at a cellular level on how things are communicated between cells to a grouping of cells, a network, through to an organ change, to a body and how we are behaving in life. Trauma, a bump to the head, is certainly going to change the way we think. Um, We can think about a sweet presentation, and and some folk who might be listening to this show today would think about Alzheimer's-type dementia and may have heard that it's the type 3 diabetes. Okay. Because sugar regulation, our sensitivity to regulating sugar, is another grouping associated with changing in our brain's performance. Okay. At the end of the day, we want to be encouraging more brain builders to be turning up than brain demolishers. And using nutrition is one, one pillar, one key pillar or foundation of the house, one key structural element to get in place. Yeah, there is exercise. What's good for the heart has also been shown to be good for the brain. But exercise also has a powerful role in um, priming the brain for learning. There's been some evidence to show that it not only exercises good um, for improving the growth of neurons. So it's like throwing 
um, if any of the people the gardeners listening to this, throwing Miracle Grow or the fertilizer, coming out with the sea salt or the, yep. the, the, the fish emulsion on the garden, it provides the right conditions in the soil for things to grow. It's providing nutrient-rich information, i.e. blood. But not only that, it's providing key triggers to cause neurons to grow. Interestingly, th- interesting thing here is that our brain, our, that hippocampus, that area I spoke to about earlier, being the area responsible for memory, it's wanting to grow right up until the day we die. Okay. So there are baby neurons there just waiting for the opportunity to grow. And what's been, what the difference is between, say, a 20-year-old and a 90-year-old is vascularization, blood supply into that area. So if we're maintaining a rich blood supply, keeping our arteries super healthy, exercise, nutrition, are already ticking those boxes yeah. to get this there, then we are then delivering good stuff into our brain. We are providing the opportunities for these baby neurons to grow. And the next component is then, well, we need to provide enough challenge, novelty, newness into the equation to cause those baby neurons to grow into fully-fledged Neurons to go, aha, we're acquiring a new skill. We're acquiring a new capacity. We're getting deeper in our knowledge around some skills. We're getting more robust and dense. It's like a, a, a veggie patch that has got a few seeds in it or a lot of seeds. Mm-hmm. And we want a lot of seeds for those things to grow so that we've got more robust. Because when we have a rich, dense, beautiful, gorgeous brain that's got that density about it, we can take a few hits. Mm-hmm. We can take a few hits in a lifetime. There's a, a beautiful study years ago which followed a group of nuns. Those nuns, uh, was, it was called the nun study, if folk want to go and have a look at this. The nun study was uh, a, a really wonderful study because it was a contained group of people, had very similar lifestyle behaviours, so it was contra- it was sort of controlled already. We didn't have too many variables of differences. So it gave us a really unique insight. And there was one nun there that comes to mind about her uh, her beautiful brain. Because these beautiful nuns said, hey, we'll give our brains to science into this. So imagine we're having a look under the hood, much like a car bonnet. We're having a look, seeing what's happening underneath there when they passed away. There were some brains there that were gorgeous, rich, beautiful, fluffy, full brains. And they, of course, didn't demonstrate any cognitive changes. And yet then there was another group of brains of these sisters that had beautiful looking, you know, brains, but not quite. There was a few holes in them. And they know, oh, hang on, this is not as beautiful as what we expected. This is looking like somebody's brain who's got dementia. And lo and behold, it certainly matched up with their cognitive scores and how they're behaving. Yes, this sister had mild cognitive impairment or dementia. But then there was a third group. This group of, of nuns, behavior is wonderful. Performance was normal. And this one nun was a le- university lecturer up until her mid-80s. She ended up surviving to about her about mid-90s. And uh, she was, uh, when she gave her brain to science, they had a look under the hood and saw a brain that looked like somebody's brain with Alzheimer's. How could this be? She mm. performed like she was, you know, no issues at all. Yet... We had a brain that looked like Alzheimer's. And this comes back to the theory of cognitive reserve. We need to be keeping investing in our brain, much like a bank account, over time to keep its resilience, grow things, encourage those brain builders to turn up. And that's when we're getting that conversion of neuron, baby neurons into big ones to form beautiful networks. Mm-hmm. She was uh, quoted to be you know, having conversation with a GP that uh, her GP was uh, keeping her from God. And uh, he was said, no, sister, it's not me keeping, it's not me keeping you from God. It's your motivation. It's your will. Mm -hmm. It's your aptitude of having an inquiring mind. That's what's keeping you away from God. And so it was a, it was, that's, I guess, the third pillar here is around how we challenge our brain. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we can go on more if you'd like, but that's all right. Keep going. It's fine, mate. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. Look, I, I do want to go, hold on to the third pillar, though. I do want to go on to talk about the proteins that contribute to the deterioration of our 
memory and our mind do you want to speak to to what that is and what that breakdown is and and how when we get to a certain age this protein starts to build up in our mind yeah sure i i there's two there's a bit there's a big question there's a lot in that question there craig um i'm going to tackle this in reverse order so i'll start with the protein that i think you're referring to is the build-up of amyloid beta Mm -hmm. um we have um, amyloid beta as a, and this comes to a theory of dementia. And the theory of dementia is the amyloid theory. And this is what um, the drug companies have gone after for the last 20 odd years and some around targeting what they believe is a really significant contributory factor uh, associated with the deterioration in the brain. And the amyloid beta is a byproduct. If we think about the life of a protein, before it becomes amyloid beta, it's called amyloid precursor. So it's like before amyloid beta. And the question is, why does it get cleaved mm-hmm. in this way? Because there's different cleaving points on that precursor for it to become amyloid beta. Why does it become amyloid beta? And amyloid beta appears to be a cellular switch to trigger a behavioral change but it only happens when there's a build-up between how the neurons in the gaps between two neurons now folk i'm not going to go too heavy here on neuroanatomy here but i will describe that the neurons being the working unit of the brain they don't actually touch there's a gap between them and we call that the synaptic gap and they communicate via signals so In that gap, there's a whole chemical exchange between one end of a neuron to the other, and that causes them to be excited or not excited. means they fire or they don't fire. And that whole firing sequence is what helps us perform all manners of functions in our body, from heart rates through to cognitive performance, things that are sending neural signals through our body and how our brain works for us to remember, etc. The... Amyloid beta is a waste product or builds up in that gap. And at night time, it's the current belief that the cleanup crew, the janitors, the the night watchmen come through and clean up that gap with a, if you're imaginary sweeper, Mm -hmm. vacuum cleaner, hoover it all up, and it's okay. Now that starts, that build up starts in our fourth decade of life. What happens, it appears to be, is that there's a build up in that gap to a point where we can't clean it up as much. And that residue builds up, and then there is like a lock and key mechanism where there is a cellular switch. And it turns off a function, closes that uh, neuron down, and we start to see shrinkage and brain change at that level. Mm. Now, the thing is, it is a prionic loop. It, It creates more of itself. And more of itself. And that's why we see that downward spiral. Now, the drug companies have gone after the, the, the question due to what? what? What causes it cleaving to that? And their mechanisms of the drugs will target one, two, maybe three at most. Mm-hmm. What has been mapped is there are around 80 different factors contributing to the cleaving. So that's why potentially the drugs aren't working. It's mm. because... There are 80 factors. Now, what can we do to influence those factors? And when we look and stand back and look at those factors, and this comes from a work from a guy called Dr. Dale Bredesen in the US, and it, when he observed the factors due to what, he observed it from a, oh my goodness, there are many lifestyle levers we have at hand to control those 80 factors. Now, what's my my build-up mechanisms are going to be different to yours, Craig, and it's going to be different to you who are listening and watching us right now. The question is, we need to map those out and then go after them and shut them down. Mm. So this is where you're saying prevention's um, better than cure in this instance, that if we can identify and avoid, and you're talking about nutrients and exercise as being two key factors in, in improving our you know, memory health, then that whole concept of working um, towards that improvement uh, becomes important as opposed to taking a pill. 
Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we, we wouldn't. Doesn't it sound beautiful? I just take one pill, and and I will say more often than not, I get questions after speaking to focus. I'm taking this supplement. What's the best supplement? What's the best one thing I can be doing? And the sad news is, guys, is that there's no one thing. I was listening to a podcast, as I do, on the way over here before my conversation with Craig today. And the host was asking a question about, you know, what's the one thing that folk can be doing? And they said, that, look, this isn't, this isn't just a one-trick show. Yeah. This is a slow burn of creating greater health. Which is building habits, basically. Building new habits. New habits. New habits. And and I think when we're younger, our bodies seem to handle things a lot better and, and more resilient because, you know, there's different hormonal changes over the course of our life. So there's all these factors. And as we get to the 40s, which I'm in, so already starting to question, identify some of the potentials there where I haven't had a cognitive test and I've lapsed a couple of times in the interview. So that's probably, you're probably going, oh, some alarm bells there. We'll check that out later. (laughs) But uh, recent studies have shown and demonstrated that the biome and the healthy stomach um, and the biome being all the, the bugs and the bacterias that help break down foods and keep our stomach and, and digestive system operational has a strong link to cognitive uh, abilities and also health so and, and memory health so uh, this concept of of keeping the stomach healthy and I've, I've got a bit of an anecdote and I've got a question for you, you might be able to answer it about a year ago I had a craving for mushrooms so I started to eat raw mushrooms and I found that I was finding them highly addictive but a couple of like I was buying them by the punnet loads and I was eating them and I'm going these are bloody good but what I was doing is I was I found that I felt I had a clearer mind and I couldn't understand why and I didn't associate it with mushrooms at all but then I thought what have I changed recently that like I didn't have any stress any worry it was just clear-headed like I could literally sit and have no thought which is an unusual experience for a lot of people to experience is where you literally can sit without a thought in your head where you can actually have just like what you consider silence, I guess. And and I thought, what is going on here? Because it was really, it was noticeably different. So you talk about, it wasn't a fogginess. It was a clearest clearness. I could actually think better if I chose to use my cognition and those abilities. But if I just sat and chose not to think about anything, which is a really good state to be in, I could do that. And I noticed that I had been eating mushrooms and I, went and looked and thought, could that be potentially a, a, a there could be, there be a benefit there? And I found research that actually demonstrated there was only last year, I think it was March last year, that found that people who are eating mushrooms actually have improved um, cognitive ability and it's around their biome that the, the stomach bugs actually like the mushrooms and that makes them propagate and you get a healthier stomach from the mushrooms and they've found links that improve that. Microbiome. I had a wonderful conversation recently with Dr. Amy Lockman of the Food and Mood Center. So that might be of interest to the folk that uh, are watching today. And we can put that in the Link. show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dr. Amy uh, is a, uh, a neuropsychologist and a nutritional scientist. And her inquiries are around what are the things that we could be doing from a food perspective to in- influence our moods, our memory. And the microbiome, guys, is not just our tummy. It's the whole cavity. So if we're thinking about that, that is from here right the way through. Yeah. And within that pathway, there are different communities of different bugs. And we're talking about bacteria, fungi, viruses, protozoa. Protozoas are in a whole different kettle of fish. And... They all have a relationship with each other. They are promiscuous. They'll share stuff between each other. Um, and a lot of the and, and there's a lot we don't know because this stuff lives in a very contained space. They have unique conditions of growing, and it's a lot. Of, it's a very hard to observe them. But what the science uh, for work like Dr. Amy Lockman, Professor Dinan 
again, a great conversation I had with a guy called uh, Scott C. Anderson, who wrote the book Psychobiotics. Psychobiotics, again, would be probably a great reference for the group who are interested in in microbiome. And this is around the bugs that do control our cognitive performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, to give you just a really unique insight... I was a parasitologist. I was sharing this with you earlier that before I became an occupational therapist, I I studied parasites. And the one that really flipped my lid was a parasite from cats. And this particular parasite from cats ends up in our tummy that ends up in our brain. Mm. Toxoplasmosis. And uh, this guy has been shown, there was an interesting uh, study by, I think, a Frenchman who said, I think my cats are controlling me. (laughs) And (laughs) and he came out with this hypothesis and he's doing this study around how his cats are controlling him. Very exaggerated. But if we think about it this way, the human genome has got 20,000 different genes. In our tummy, I think we've got an order of around 2 million from the different bacteria that's there. Yeah. And they're sending out metabolites, different pieces of information that cross over the gut wall that communicates through our blood, through our immune system, through stimulating our nervous system, the vagus nerve particularly, and coming up into our brain. And that's giving us information about controlling information. It's, influ- it's influencing our hormones. It's influencing a whole host of different functions in our body. And we're just really scratching the surface on this. The question is, how do we keep them happy? Maybe you've stumbled on mushrooms as mm. keeping some of them happy because mushrooms will appear to a certain cluster, a certain community. Um, it might also be that, you know, niacin in mushrooms, a vitamin B, which we all need good dosage of vitamin B groups, guys, for cognitive fitness. Maybe you're deficient in, vit- in, in niacin. Mm. Um, Can I just ask a question mm. on craving, actually, because I brought it up. There is a perception that our biome actually does some thinking for us and that my craving mushrooms at that time is my biome, not my brain, actually saying we need whatever is in. It knows what's in the foods it wants and it's doing the thinking for you. Is that a good analogy to explain a little bit of of why we crave things potentially? Potentially. I'm I'm going to put potentially there in, 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 in brackets there. And there's also some work, say, for example, when you're stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be craving sweet foods. I had a lady that came to me after a car accident and she had an absolute fetish for Danishes. Never in her life has she been Danish orientated, yeah. but she was all for Danishes. And there appears to be you know, quite a lot of support that when folk are stressed, you'll re- be reaching for those refined carbohydrates, those very cheap sugars, easy sugars, the quick burn sugars. Um, and that may explain that behavior. The relationship with the gut and what they are doing from a metabolite perspective, I don't know. I might even link okay. the gut now around our diet, exercise as well, and our mood. So here's a really fascinating, and I'm going to rock everyone with this one, is that by lifting weights, you can change your biome. Okay. How does that happen? Yeah. That's what, that was a How question, does that happen? I don't know, but it's kind of cool, isn't it? But what they've found is that by um, exercise, you're influencing your tummy bug environment. The how will be revealed. The benefits, you've got a happier tummy biome. You've got a, a microbiome there that is going to be much more comfortable, much more effective, much more efficient. And the key for health of a microbiome appears to be, one, diverse population. So we just can't have everyone wearing, you know, think about it like this. We, we go to a dinner party and everyone's wearing dinner jackets and they're all black. Well, there's not a lot of diversity. Maybe we're all in dinner jackets and in different colors. Well, we're in different colors, but we're still within the same group. We need diversity of guys coming in their jeans, their shirts, the dinner jackets, the tuxes, the you name it. We've got a whole diverse dinner party. We need that dinner party in there. And they need the population can't be one. They've got to be a robust population. They've got to hold their own. And what we eat, how we move, how we sleep, or what quality of our sleep we have, the experience of stress, our environment that we're in, the toxins that we're exposed to, hence why I talked about um, uh, foods that are processed or full of preservatives, um, will influence 
the quality, richness, and diversity of your your bugs in your microbiome. Mm. Just a question around, we, we mentioned processed foods and eating things that look like they've just come off the farm. Is that also because they're bringing with them some of the, the, the bugs that we actually need in our biome, whereas when we've got highly processed foods at high temperatures and things like that, that a lot of that potential stuff that's, that, that is there um, in meat and, and fruit and vegetables isn't necessarily there as much in the processed Okay, I'll I'll do a really simple one on this one, Craig, because my son asked me this yesterday. We went to the fish and chip shops and he said, Dad, I don't like chicken salt. I went, chicken salt, it's a funny term, isn't it? Yeah. Where's the chicken in it? And we had a great conversation about what it is. And if we think about the chicken salt, it's a boiling down, it's a dehydrating and it's an extraction process mixed with salt, sodium and chloride. And they put it together and they call it chicken salt. How on earth do our bacteria in our tummy interpret that piece of information where it once was a chicken, but no, it's not now? It doesn't know what to do. I'm agitated. I start throwing out things that I'm not very happy. And from those metabolite signals of not being comfortable and increasing, for example, if we have a highly processed diet, we end up promoting more bugs that are not very helpful for the richness of our community. We're increasing our risk for autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, etc. We're putting ourselves at risk for thyroid dysfunction. We're putting ourselves at risk for diabetes. So when we don't put the foods in there that are near the natural source, our bugs don't know what to do with them. Mm. And if we do put stuff in there, it's going to promote stuff over the bugs to get stronger. The army, their troops will start encroaching on the territory of others, they get weaker, less effective, and we can't break down the stuff anymore. Mm. We're having less quality being brought over. We start to experience brain fog. We start to have tummy upset. That's probably a very overt sign that things aren't particularly happy if you're getting glass, heavy, painful discomfort. So in the same way as your biome has diversity, then is this why the concept of a balanced diet may well be important because by balancing your diet and making sure you're eating different food groups you're feeding all those populations of bio that's correct yeah so we really want to keep the 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 colors you know eat the rainbow Mm -hmm. in terms of colors of the fruit and veggies that you've got on your plate um don't skimp on your grains if you can we are deficient in magnesium as it is so get that good stuff into you and then think fiber 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 your tummy biome, the bugs in your in your in your microbiome, love it, love 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 it. So yeah. just so people understand fiber, that's pretty much eating plants. Plants, yeah, that's eat, the eat easiest plants, way to put it. Eat plants, eat plants. Meat as a condiment, or enjoy a bit of meat, but just don't make it the hero of the meal. Mm-hmm. You know, if we think about that classic uh, truckers, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a great restaurant. You probably would remember it, uh, Craig. There was a restaurant here in Brisbane called the Californian Cafe. My wife and I were reminiscing. It used to be across the road from Dooley's. Mm-hmm. And uh, they served the American truckers breakfast. And it was a bit of a statement of, uh, of yourself about whether you could actually knock one over. And no one could. Yeah. And it is the quintessential massive piece of meat with a smattering of, I don't even call them vegetables, they're probably more chips than anything else on that plate. But that in and of itself is probably a really gross example about how we need to think about structures of stuff on our plate. Yeah. Plant, plant heavy, meat as, a, meat as a condiment, meat as a deck of cards. That's mm-hmm. about the size that you've been thinking about. Sure. Now, you touched on earlier sleep mm. uh, as well because we've got exercise, diet, and and you mentioned sleep so with memory health how important is it is this concept of getting a certain amount of sleep and i imagine we know that at different ages different age groups do prefer to sleep different hours so what and how important is sleep to memory health absolutely critical critical 
Our sleep hygiene is a term that we'll throw around in health circles or science circles about the quality of our sleep. How clean is it from a hygiene perspective? And that's about, am I getting a rich, you know, nutritious? Let's think about sleep like that. It's, it's delivering wonderful stuff of vitality to our bodies and brains. It's helping us repair. Mm-hmm. It was only a couple of years ago that they uh, found the glymphatic system in the brain. And this was a system in the brain where the brain shrinks at night time to allow it to be flushed with, with fluids. Okay. And it's almost like a wash-rinse cycle in a washing machine. It's, getting, it's, it's giving the brain a lovely little wash-up. It's helping us get rid of some of those amyloid beta buildup. Okay. And so we need to have a rich, nutritious sleep at night time, which goes through the different cycles of deep sleep. We'll go through different cycles of sleep at night time. And those cycles are important. They appear to confer different benefits. There's some work by a guy called uh, Professor Matthew Walker out of the States. And uh, Matthew talks about different stages of sleep imparting different benefits to memory performance. And if you have a good night's sleep the night before and you want to remember things, so practicing, say, some cognitive exercises before sleep, uh, two hours before, and then have a really good sleep, you're going to be much better at recalling those in the morning than the night before. So there, can, there is a real benefit around sleep hygiene, sleep performance, and an immediate cognitive benefit, immediate memory benefit in that time. However, over time, we see it with caregivers. Caregivers who I'm deeply concerned about, those people that provide care to children, through to adults, to their parents, that are there burning the midnight candle, providing care in home. Mm. They are running the red light very, very thin here, where they are also significantly exposed to experiencing cognitive changes and setting themselves up for a mild cognitive impairment, which I mentioned earlier in the show, which we are then six times more likely to progress to dementia if we don't don't act on it. Sure. I want to, before we wrap up, and there's a lot to go through, I think we could go for a lot longer on all this on all this stuff but i want to bring two things so my mother has macular degeneration and one of the things she's noticed because she doesn't have the acuity in her sight anymore is that she because she doesn't have the vision to read she's losing her concept of how to spell words and all these things because she's not actively doing it so i guess there's not only there are situations where people who may have visual impairment or are unable to keep certain parts of their brain active that there would be exercises and things and you mentioned prior to sleep one of the things my mum used to love to do was read before going to bed Um, but there are also people who would do memory type apps and things of that nature Um, but you suggest that doing that sort of thing if you've got a memory app or something that you want those apps to potentially be or if you're working on that maybe do it a couple of hours prior to going to sleep. I think there's a couple of ways you can leverage um, using these cognitive training tools. And the, the, the point I want folk to be aware of is that when we're looking at these activities online, you might think of Luminosity, Brain HQ, mm. uh, CogMed Peak, uh, terms or businesses that are presenting these products to the market to us, that at the end of the day, they are a... It's like going to the gym... If if you want to be a footballer, if you want to be a footballer, you want to be the best footballer there is in the state or even make that quality of team, that professional league team, and all you did was go to the gym, do you think you're going to be a professional footballer? No. no. We need to take these exercises with a grain of salt that they p- target a very specific skill only and they have a very narrow effect, meaning they don't translate to real world. However, there is one exercise that does, that has been shown to have a far effect. And that one exercise, it's a really, I'm going to slow it down a bit because it's quite a complex sound, but I'll I'll spell it out. It's called the dual, D-U-A-L, N, N Fanelli back exercise. Dual end back. I'm not going to explain it because there's quite a lot, and and for it's a hard one to describe over 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 the podcast. But in this exercise, I am being challenged visually and auditory. 
so visual and hearing, vision and hearing at the same time, and that stimulus goes away. And then I'm presented with a new vision and hearing stimulus. Mm-hmm. And I'm asked, is that the same or different to the one I was just shown? And it changes again. And it changes again. I'm always having to do this back, one back, the mm-hmm. end back. Mm-hmm. The jewel being vision and hearing, one back. I get really good at that type of exercise. I'll go to two back. I've got my mum at the moment. She's doing three back. What this is working on is our working memory and our speed of processing skills for auditory and vision. And I would say that for anybody who is listening to this show uh, and watching us today is to focus on those two age-related skills that change over time. Now, what happens as we get older is that we'll have a change potentially in our working memory, but also, you can see I'm wearing glasses today, I also might experience a change in my hearing skills over time, and I want to be challenging the systems that combine that information to create the memory. And I would go after that exercise. Yeah. Now, I would leverage it by putting some exercise with it. So raise your heart rate. Why? Because it's the miracle grow. Yeah. It's priming us. Yeah. Having good quality sleep with it. I am engineering now a better outcome to improve my Now, guess what? I'm also eating nutritiously. I'm eating a really smart, memory health smart diet. Mm-hmm. My microbiome is getting quite comfortable. And in that, my microbiome, we haven't touched on these things, but it's also about reducing our toxicity. The things that we put in, preservatives are one, but we've got a lot, a whole host of environmental contagions that can mm. affect the quality of our microbiome. It can mimic the functions of our uh, hormones in our body. So this is a whole host of things that we could dive into and we'd probably get lost, a bit like Alice in the Wonderland on this one. I think I'll have to get you back at some stage because I think this is a very important topic that is obviously something that, as I said, you're a man on a mission because there's a lot of research that's coming out now. As you said, 2017 seems to be a big year for this, um, this sort of recognizing the importance and the linking of diet to memory and degenerative you know cognitive um, deterioration so I, I really do appreciate your time today I will put information in the links below for for your memory health made easy podcast and also you have toolkits and things like that and you have a website so all that information and any references you've made to other studies we'll put in the description but Dave Norris I really appreciate your time in in helping people understand and hopefully making their memory health that little bit better and explain explaining it to make it a little bit easier for them to understand. Yeah, if if I could leave with this one today Craig is that let's let's stop avoidable memory loss. You can do it. You can take actions today with some of the content we've covered off um and by doing so you're not only going to change yourself, you're going to change people around you. You're going to have a larger impact with those folk around you as well. And uh, if you do that, I'd love to hear your story and see how you're applying it. So, Craig, thank you very much for having me talk and speak uh, with your audience today. It's, uh, it's you know, something I love doing. So thank you very much for having no me. Thanks, Dave. Um, thanks for your time. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded. I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.